Welcome to our podcast, SGLT2 Inhibitors Morning Commute, The Heart Failure Connection. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Boehringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals and Eli Lilly and Company. In this episode, Dr. James Januzzi and Dr. Silvio Inzuki discuss how SGLT2 inhibitors evolve from treatments for type 2 diabetes to key treatments for patients with heart failures. Drs. Januzzi and Inzuki look at the pivotal trials that thrust these treatments into the heart failure treatment limelight. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash SGLT2 inhibitors 5. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Januzzi is a member of the Cardiology Division of Massachusetts General Hospital and is the Hutter Family Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School in Boston. Dr. Silvio Inzuki is Medical Director of the Yale Diabetes Center and is a Professor of Medicine at Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Januzzi will begin our discussion. This is Dr. James Januzzi from the Mass General Hospital Heart Center. I'm really excited to be speaking with my colleague, Dr. Silvio Inzuki from Yale, uh, about SGLT2 inhibitors, the heart failure connection. So, Silvio, uh, really great to be speaking with you uh, on this important topic. Hi, Jim. It's uh, very interesting times we're living in, in terms of all these new data regarding this a specific drug category and its impact on heart failure. Yeah, times really are changing. And in fact, those of us in the heart failure world have largely adopted, some have said stolen, uh, a therapy from your world uh, to represent what we refer to as one of the four pillars of heart failure care. And this has moved really quickly. And um, it might be helpful for the listeners to have a very brief historical connection for how we got from cardiovascular outcomes trials or CVOTs to these large outcome studies in heart failure where SGLT2 inhibitors are now found to be an important therapy for our patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. Well, it's a, it's a complicated story. And, and just to summarize it quickly, uh, in the past, we had no diabetes medication that was ever proven to conclusively reduce cardiovascular events. It's been one of the banes of my existence is never trying, never being able to find uh, such a medication. I think metformin's come close, uh, but small trials pre-statin era. Uh, the TZDs, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because you're dealing with a reduction with some of the TZDs with um, atherothrombotic events, but an increase in heart failure. So until the SGLT2 inhibitors came out, we had no drug that did both both lower glucose to prevent retinopathy, nephropathy, neuropathy, but also have a beneficial impact on uh, cardiovascular complications. So the FDA mandated, beginning in 2008, these large cardiovascular outcome trials, basically to ensure safety, because there had been some studies uh, that were either on the market or were about to come to market that were suspected of actually increasing cardiovascular complications. So the FDA said any new drug beginning in 2008 would have to demonstrate at least safety. So these large CV outcome trials, as we call them now, uh, were uh, quickly assembled. At one point, I think there were some 200,000 patients uh, globally involved in these trials uh, just over the past uh, decade or so. 
And the first of the SGLT2 inhibitor trials to uh, uh, disclose its results was Empereg outcome uh, with the SGLT2 inhibitor empagliflozin. And this showed a uh, positive effect on MACE cardiovascular mortality. And somewhat surprisingly, this huge effect on heart failure hospitalizations with a relative risk reduction of 35%. It was somewhat surprising to all of us, uh, us that were involved in this uh, trial. And then when we uh, noted that the drug was effective both in those patients with baseline heart failure, as well as without baseline heart failure, I think the cardiovascular community uh, became very interested and asked the very important question, uh, would this drug work even if diabetes was not present? In other words, was was glucose an effect modified at all in this benefit of uh, the SGLT2s on uh, these important heart failure outcomes? So that led, um, as you know, uh, to a series of trials conducted mainly by cardiologists. And while they included patients with diabetes, they did not exclude non-diabetic individuals. Yeah, that's a, a really great summary of how we got from studies designed to prove the safety of SGLT2 inhibitors for type 2 diabetes management to their being studied as a prime heart failure therapy alongside other drugs like beta blockers, RNAs, mineralocorticoid blockers for patients with heart failure, regardless of diabetes status. But we'll come back to that because I think that intersection between diabetes and heart failure is something worth discussing in a bit. So the first populations to be examined were patients with reduced ejection fraction, as well as in separate studies, those with preserved ejection fraction. And we now have data for those patients with reduced ejection fraction from at, at least two important studies, uh, the first of which was a, a trial that you were an instrumental uh, participant in, the DAPA-HF study. Um, and uh, soon after, the uh, Emperor Reduced study read out. So it would be helpful for the audience to hear a bit about each of the trials and, and some of their top-line results and some of the nuances with each. So DAPA-HF, as you pointed out, was a HEF-REF study. Um, as I understand it, the uh, uh, treatments over the years uh, have been much easier to demonstrate a benefit in that segment of the heart failure population, whereas the HEF-PEF, those with preserved ejection fraction, it's bit, uh, been a bit uh, more difficult to demonstrate uh, benefits. So the first series of trials were set up in, in HEF-REF. And DAP-HF used apigoflozin. Uh, primary outcome was worsening heart failure. Most of those were obviously uh, heart failure hospitalizations along with cardiovascular mortality. And the relative risk reduction was uh, 26%. And that was uh, comparable to what we saw as the heart failure benefits in the uh, diabetes cardiovascular outcome trials, which were not uh, dedicated toward patients with, um, uh, with heart failure. Only 10 to 15% of patients in those trials actually had uh, heart failure. The, the striking uh, result from DAP-HF, as well as uh, the subsequent uh, trial using empagliflozin, uh, known as Emperor Reduced, was this complete lack of heterogeneity in the effect of the medication based on the presence or absence of diabetes, meaning that the hazard ratio was nearly identical in those patients who had type 2 diabetes coming into the trial and those that did not. It was about 45% uh, with diabetes, 55% without diabetes, and you couldn't tell 
uh, based on how well the drug worked to reduce um, heart failure, worsening, or, or cardiovascular mortality. And was the SGLT2 inhibitor in each of these trials safe in patients without diabetes? Uh, yeah, I mean, th that's always a concern uh, when you're using a glucose-loading medication. The first uh, question that pops up, am I going to be inducing hypoglycemia? And the answer is resounding no. In fact, most of the diabetes drugs that have been developed over the past decade do not result in hypoglycemia because the only reason you uh, have hypoglycemia is when you're using insulin, you're taking away the body's normal homeostatic mechanisms to control blood glucose because you have a bunch of insulin that's been injected or with the sulfonylureas because they activate potassium channels in the beta cells and you lose a regulatory capacity to shut off those beta cells. But everything else, uh, starting with metformin, actually, TZDs, DPP4s, GLP1s, SGLT2s, they do not lead to hypoglycemia uh, for a variety of reasons. But the most important is that they've not taken away the body's normal mechanisms to fight hypoglycemia. So I, I explained to patients that when the blood sugar normalizes with these medications, they stop working. It's not really how it works, but um, I think that uh, patients get the point that they're not going to be predisposed to hypoglycemia. Obviously, if you're on insulin and you're tightly controlled, or even on a sulfonylurea and you're tightly controlled, if you now add on a drug that doesn't lead to hypoglycemia by itself, you could precipitate hypoglycemia, but that's because uh, the insulin dose needs to be reduced or the sulfonylurea dose needs to be reduced. But um, the drugs are surprisingly uh, safe as regards to hypoglycemia. Um, we were actually concerned, Jim, you know, I, I don't treat a lot of patients with heart failure. I know you do, but these are sometimes tenuous individuals, right? Their, their volume status is some, sometimes questionable. They're having a potent diuretics increased or decreased. And, you know, it's a vulnerable population. So we were concerned, not necessarily because of the risk of hypoglycemia, but because these medications do to some degree lead to some volume contraction it is, is whether we were going to be inducing hypotension, acute kidney injury. And again, uh, surprisingly, there was very little uh, adverse events. In fact, uh, when you tallied all the adverse events, there, were, uh, there was no increase in these volume-related re events uh, in the dapagliflozin versus the placebo group. So extremely safe and what I would consider a very vulnerable population of patients. Yeah, no question. Really, uh, and we see this clinically, is that they are among the most well-tolerated choices of heart failure therapies that we have, which is great to see. So in the somewhat higher risk population of the Emperor Reduce study, we saw very similar findings, um, very well-tolerated, uh, equivalent benefit across A1C strata, um, reductions in our primary endpoint was, was uh, heart failure hospitalization and cardiovascular death, um, as well as reductions in total heart failure hospitalizations. And much like in DAPA studies, we also saw improvements um, or reduction in the slope of decline in estimated GFR, you know, which to me as a doc that sees a lot of heart failure patients, that to me is maybe perhaps one of the most important findings from all of these studies is that we not only have a drug that reduces cardiovascular events, but unlike many of the other drugs we give in heart failure that may reduce risk, but also may cause decline in kidney function, 
Here we see a therapy that not only reduces risk, but also protects the kidneys some. And that to me is just so important. Yeah, it's a bit of a vicious cycle as worsening heart failure leads to worsening renal function and vice versa. So to, to break that cycle, uh, I think is, is very, very important. Yeah, really wonderful findings. So you've given us a really nice view of um, the uh, DAPHF study and Emperor Reduce. Now, um, more recently, there was a study that focused on an SGLT1-2 inhibitor, that being sotagliflozin. Now, I'm reasonably certain our listeners don't know what an SGLT1-2 inhibitor is. Do you, do you want to just briefly give us a sense of how this drug differs from SGLT2 inhibitors? Sure. Uh, now, uh, sotagliflozin is not yet available in the U.S., although it is in Europe. And uh, I would remind you that SGLT2 is primarily expressed in the proximal of uh, renal nephron and the proximal tubule. And it is a transporter that uh, serves to resorb glucose and to some degree sodium. So when you block that, you increase glucose excretion. It is the uh, transporter that's responsible for about 90% of that reclamation of glucose from the glomerular filtrate back into the plasma. The remaining 10% happens to be SGLT1. So it's a minor transporter in the proximal uh, nephron. Where it is most highly expressed is actually the GI tract. So SGLT1 is the transporter that's mainly responsible for absorbing glucose from the gut. And when the uh, sotagliflozin molecule was developed, the hope was that you could do two things. You can excrete glucose to the urine and be as powerful a glucose-lowering medication as your conventional SGLT2 inhibitors, such as DAPA or empagliflozin. But by limiting glucose absorption in the gut, you would attenuate the glucose spikes after meals, almost like an alpha-glucositis inhibitor, which are older drugs that used to be used in, in diabetes uh, in certain populations. And therefore, the hope would be that you'd have even greater uh, lowering of glucose. As it turns out, the drugs may be slightly stronger in terms of A1C lowering than conventional SGLT2s, but I'm not sure that hope of this powerful drug that would block both SGLT1, uh, diminish glucose absorption, and SGLT2 by increasing renal glucose excretion uh, really panned out. But the cardiovascular impact was still quite impressive uh, in these uh, trials that you mentioned. Yeah, so I haven't been all that impressed with the difference in their glucose lowering, um, but what was impressive to me about the two trials that were recently reported, the Soloist and SCORED studies. Soloist is a study looking at patients with um, recently decompensated heart failure, actually hospitalized, mm. um, and, and soon after, as well as the SCORED study, which was sort of a riff on the, the outpatient chronic kidney disease uh, studies like the DAPA-CKD study. Um, what was impressive was the consistency of benefit with, um, with sotagliflozin compared to uh, empagliflozin and dapagliflozin. And one of the things that really strikes me about, for example, the results from the Soloist study and from other studies, including that from studies of dapagliflozin uh, and EMPA, for that matter, is the rapidity of benefit, right? So can you, can you share with the listeners, uh, uh, you know, how rapidly we see an impact on heart failure events with these drugs? You know, Jim, that was the most uh, striking uh, news, I think, from most of these trials, uh, starting with Emperor Galcom, is when you look at the Kaplan-Meier event curves, 
uh, particularly for heart failure hospitalization, but also for cardiovascular mortality in Empereg, the divergence of these curves seemed really early. And you know, having uh, participated in and read uh, dozens of uh, atherosclerosis type of trials, such as lipid lowering therapies, blood pressure uh, lowering therapies, you don't see this divergence of the event curves until about 12 months, sometimes even later. After all, it takes a while for the atherosclerotic process in my mind, uh, to be uh, attenuated. But uh, in some of these trials, they've looked at statistical peaks at the data uh, at one month, uh, two months, and three months. And significance is actually achieved in many of these trials before 30 days elapses. As you pointed out, a very, very rapid effect. Now, whether that gives us any insights into the mechanisms of how these drugs are working um, is an interesting uh, question. But clearly, this is not a, a drug category or categories uh, that are driving their benefits through traditional effects of uh, anti-atherosclerosis. Yeah, longer term, uh, slower mechanisms of action. And that gives us a, an opportunity in the last few minutes to pivot over to that question of mechanism of action. Um, we know that it's, it's regardless of their effects on diabetes status, but before we go through maybe some hypothesized mechanisms of action, it seems to me if you're treating somebody with an anti-diabetes therapy who does not have um, diabetes, do these drugs prevent onset of diabetes? Uh, you know, in, in our patients with heart failure, half have uh, dysglycemia and maybe more. And certainly, although they don't seem to be dependent on the presence of diabetes, I mean, let's be honest, we have to treat the whole patient. And so, um, you know, prevention of onset of diabetes would be a very important benefit that these drugs might also exert. So we actually had that opportunity in DAPHF because more than half of the patients, as we pointed out, did not have diabetes. And since we were measuring A1Cs in all patients periodically, we asked a simple question as whether nuance of diabetes uh, was decreased in those patients that were randomized dapagliflozin versus placebo. And interestingly, uh, that's exactly what we saw. We saw yeah. uh, a 32% relative risk reduction in nuance of diabetes in those who were um, treated with dapagliflozin. Um, as most primary care doctors know, the most commonly prescribed medication, even though there's never been an indication, but the most commonly used agent for diabetes prevention is metformin. Metformin, right, it's sure. It's cheap, it's safe, we all know how to use it. Um, interestingly, uh, metformin got its reputation for a diabetes prevention agent from the DPP study, the Diabetes Prevention Program study. And there, the relative risk reduction was almost identical. It was 31%. Fascinating. So, so obviously, you... yeah, this is obviously not as uh, important an outcome as uh, CV mortality, heart failure, hospitalization, but I think of it as an added bonus of using an SGLT2 inhibitor that you'll take patients, most of whom obviously have prediabetes or pretty close to prediabetes, and preventing their deterioration to frank diabetes. So a complete value add. So, you know, there are more review articles out there than can be counted on the hypothesized mechanisms of action for these drugs. But, you know, what, are, what would you say are the top one, two, or three potential benefits in heart failure with reduced EF? So the simple one is that this is a diuretic. And uh, I think cardiologists scoff at that notion because uh, traditional diuretics such as loops, et cetera, have never been demonstrated to have such an effect. Um, but uh, there are some really smart uh, translational scientists who describe this diuretic as a smarter diuretic insofar as they reduce uh, sodium reabsorption very proximally 
And they kind of trick the distal nephron into thinking it's volume replete. So you get this plasma volume reduction without the concurrent activation of the neurohormonal system uh, that is typically activated when you're using traditional loop diuretics. So it's like you're experiencing um, preload and afterload reduction without the penalty of activation of antidiuretic hormone, renin, aldosterone, catecholamines, et cetera. So that's a very attractive theory. Uh, this is simply a smarter form of a, of a diuretic. And then uh, there are the more metabolically minded, shall we say, that feel that the ketone hypothesis is the answer. And that has to do with this interesting activation of a ketogenesis, specifically in increases in beta-hydroxybutyrate. And some of the vascular biologists have demonstrated that beta-hydroxybutyrate may be a more efficient fuel source for the heart, particularly the failing heart. You generate more ATP by burning ketones than you do burning uh, free fatty acids, which is the main diet of the heart in patients with type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. So that's another theory, that this is a switch in terms of metabolic fuels. And then there are additional theories. Uh, one that is uh, gaining some popularity is this activation, or I should say blockade, of the sodium-hydrogen exchanger uh, within cardiomyocytes that may lead to a more efficient pumping action of the heart. I think we can go on and on. Yeah. There are some mechanistic studies that have been recently published showing that there may be some remodeling of the heart after three to six months, which are very, very interesting, although that does not get specifically to the underlying mechanism through which the heart is being uh, remodeled or reverse remodeled. As and nor do, does it explain the very early benefits that you described early, so, earlier. So it's, it, it definitely remains an open question. Well, we're going to wrap things up, but I, I want to just ask a couple of rapid fire questions to you. The first, of course, is in this resource constrained world where patients have specific drugs that they can or may not have as easy access to because of their pharmacy plan. You know, when you're prescribing an SGLT2 inhibitor to somebody with heart failure, do you feel this is a class effect? Can we, for example, prescribe empagliflozin or dapagliflozin and expect similar benefits for those patients with reduced DF? With regards to heart failure and the, and the progression of CKD, I think the answer is yes. There's a lot more lability in terms of MACE and on cardiovascular mortality, and the reasons for those differences are not quite clear. Yeah, it's hard to say. And, and while in the next podcast, we're going to be discussing decision pathways for treatment selection, maybe as the heart failure doc, I'll take on the question of in whom we're going to treat. And one thing that was seen in each of our studies is that the benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors were clearly additive to even the most contemporary heart failure therapies like angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitors. So, uh, you know, really when it comes down to it, it's patients with symptomatic heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, but a peek into the future is going to be whether these drugs are of benefit uh, to those patients with preserved ejection fraction. And we have a hint from a pooled analysis from the sol soloist and scored studies that showed a possible benefit in patients with HEFPEF, which really will be an exciting future. And I suspect that we'll have some news on that very soon with the uh, impending results from the Emperor Preserve study. So Silvio, we'll come, come on back and discuss HEFPEF at another time, okay? Okay, sounds good. Super, thanks so much for joining folks. We hope that uh, you, you found this discussion interesting. Thank you for joining us. 
Remember to claim your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash SGLT2 inhibitors 5. For all the podcasts in this series, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash cardiology. Cardiology.